So I got a question for you. I need to know if anyone remembers any of these things. Does anybody remember Sherman and Peabody from the adventures of Bullwinkle and Rocky? Remember? Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat, and he'd pull out the lion. And the, but Bullwinkle, that's not a rabbit. Well, it wasn't my hat. Um, those, and uh, uh, they had the Wayback Machine. Re- remember where they'd get in it, and they'd take adventures and go back in time? Do you remember maybe some of you watch, whoops, Doctor Who? Uh, it's back on TV. He travels back and forth in time on the BBC. Does anybody remember the time tunnel? Yeah? You all remember that? Okay. Then that's the one we're going to do today. Okay? So you are going to take an adventure. You are going through a time tunnel. We are going back and back in time to Asia Minor. The year 47 A.D. And we're going to go back and adventure with Brother Paul and Brother Barnabas as they do their trip. I've got Jeff who's uh, about to head out in the military and he's dizzy from that last screen. So Steve and Michelle, y'all make sure he's okay before he goes. We don't want him over there looking around. Um, we talked the start of this missionary journey last week. We're going to do a middle section, and then next week, our ho- oh, well, not next week, we don't have class because it's Easter Sunday. The following week, we plan on not only finishing the first missionary journey, but talking about the aftermath, because Paul went around and gave reports about his missionary journey. He reported back to Jerusalem, and we've got some details of that report. And so we'll start getting into that during our next class. Uh, last week, as we discussed, if we're looking at the important part of the Mediterranean area, where Paul uh, was having this uh, uh, wonderful call and adventure and ministry, Uh, Paul and Barnabas started out in Antioch, and that's the church in Syria where they were ministering. As they ministered in Antioch, there was a call that was placed on their lives by God. And God said, set me apart, or set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And that's the work of this missionary trip. The missionary trip began as Paul left Antioch with Barnabas and John Mark. They sailed over to the island of Cyprus, landing at the port of Salamis. The island of Cyprus, we discussed last week, was the home island, the home place for Barnabas. And so it makes some sense that they might have chosen that as the mission field because it makes sense you'd want to go to your families and your friends and your loved ones and share the good news with them. And so to Cyprus they went. They put into port there, but they walked the entire length of the island, ending up at Paphos, where they had a a, a visit, if you will, an opportunity to speak to Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is the Roman ruler of the island. He's called the proconsul. He's not Jewish, though he had a Jewish fella in his court, but he's a Roman ruler, a governor type for the island. That might be a good title for us to use as we think of our local governing. So he went to see uh, the governor of the island, we could say, or, or, or a proconsul, a ruler. While he's there seeing Sergius Paulus, you'll recall, we discussed how Sergius Paulus is moved towards faith. And embraces the faith of Jesus. And it's an incredible story. And it's a wonderful conversion. And it's one where Sergius Paulus 
is being ministered to and taught by Paul, the apostle, and Barnabas. And it's the first time we see Paul using his Latin name. And we talked about how it made sense that if Paul is talking to a proconsul named Paul, it would be a common point and a common basis. And from then on out, with one or two small exceptions that make sense, Luke begins calling Saul Paul and continues to do so for the rest of Paul's life as it's detailed at least in Luke and Acts, or actually just Acts. So we had the conversion of the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus last week, and I want that fresh in your minds because we discussed last week that Paul and Barnabas left Cyprus and went up to Perga. They did not stay only at Perga. At Perga, John Mark got on another boat and headed away. We talked about that last week, the whys. But without doing any evangelism work that we know of in Perga, Paul and Barnabas went north up to Pisidian Antioch, up into the mountains. It's an elevation of about 3,600 feet. Why, I ask you, did they leave Perga and go immediately to Pisidian Antioch? Luke doesn't tell us the exact reason why, but we've got some pretty good ideas why. And uh, one of the best uh, uh, ideas that, that I've read that, that I'm particularly fond of is, uh, comes off of an archaeological discovery in 1912. In 1912, archaeologists found a stone that talks about a family that included basically Sergius Paulus. You can see part of the inscription there. You can see the Paul, P-A-U-L. They wrote use in a V shape in Latin. Okay, you with me? So if you have two of those, what do you have? A W. See, in our letter W, you still see that old V for a U. Make sense? Okay, so P-A, what we would say V, but it's a U, L, and that's Paul, and it's talking about a daughter of Paul. You can see the Sergius down there in the bottom right, the S-E-R, and you can still see part of the G for the name. Paul of Sergius was a, a big family name in Asia Minor in this very area of Pisidian Antioch. In fact, if you want to see this stone, you basically go to the town closest to Pisidian Antioch at the Yalvac Museum where it is today. But the family, we can see from the, 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 the inscriptions and other information that this was a family that for generations was noteworthy in that area. So the, what I'm telling you is, let's do it this way. From Paphos, where Sergius Paulus is governor, Paul and Barnabas leave and go to Sergius Paulus' homeland to continue their efforts at converting. Why did they go there? Well, it, the best reason to make sense to me is Sergius Paulus sent them. He said, would you go share this with my family, my friends, my relatives? Probably wrote them a letter saying, hey, these guys have some good news that I've learned. It's changed my life. I want you to know about it. I want you to know about Jesus and what he's done. And so Paul and Barnabas leave and they go to the home place of Sergius Paulus after leaving his court where he reigned as governor, if you will. And in Pisidian Antioch, they start doing their converting and their mission work. Now, take all of that, 
and set it aside. That's a capsule. As I would say, if we were in a courtroom, new point. Okay. I want to talk to you about the people in Pisidian Antioch. There are two groups of people that we know about biblically that were there. And I want us to get a good understanding of who they were because these are Bible basics that I'll bet you we've, I've got my mom in here. Mom's been going to church for a long time considering she's 37. <laughs> um, and has been a student of the Bible all of her life. I can look out and see a number of other folks. The Riddles are here. They've been going to church. Well, I'll talk, Mike's real old. Debbie's 37 like mom, but Mike's probably... Hundred, um, and I dare say there are some things, perhaps, that we've just, uh, in the best efforts of Sunday school class, you can only cover so much in certain classes, and there's some great stuff worth digging out. So let's dig for a minute and look at what we know about the people in this part of Turkey. First of all, if we were to take a map of Europe, today's Europe, we can circle an area that at the time of Jesus and even before and even after was an area that comprises most of France, some northern part of Italy, western Switzerland, some Germany. And the people who lived there were called Gauls. They were also called Celts, C-E-L-T. And the Celtic influence came from them going north and invading England. Okay, but... We'll leave that out of this class. It's not necessary. Right now, let's, these are warrior types. Ultimately, Julius Caesar defeats them in what are called the Gallic Wars. And Caesar talks about, he, he writes a book on it. All Gaul is divided into three parts. The book begins. But this is Gaul. And those Gaul warriors would hire out as mercenaries. You could hire you a couple of Gaulish thugs to fight your battles for you. And it had been this way for some time. They were semi-savages. They had that savage look to them. And so the Gauls and the Celts from Gaul got hired and brought down into Asia Minor in the 200s B.C. So in the 200s B.C., you have coming down into Pisidianioch, these Gauls. Now, over the next 100 or 200 years, they stay Gauls while they're there, but they start taking on a lot of Greek habits and a lot of Greek culture. And their kids learn the Greek language. And just as we have some, uh, for example, there are a number of cultural groups that have come into America that keep their cultural history along with America as their name. We have groups from Italy that we consider Italian-Americans. We can speak of... of uh, uh, any number of different groups. You know, absent a Native American, all of us came over here somewhere, somehow, in our heritage. And so we have, you know, those of European descent, we have African descent, we have uh, 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 Asian descent, and you have Asian Americans, African Americans, Euro Americans. There's all sorts. We still do that, right? You with me? Okay, well, they had Gallo Grecians back then, or Gallo Grecians. By the way, do you know what you'd call a Gala Grecian if you were writing him a letter? You shorten it to a Galatian. See, the Galatian churches that Paul's ministering to, the Gal, G-A-L part, those are the Gauls. 
So it was they were Galatia is the name this region took because they were Galatians or Gauls, Galatian Greeks, Gallo Grecians, Galatians, who took over that area. All right. So it took a lot of Gaul to. <laughs> Never mind. Now that's not all. There's another group that history shows us settled this place as well. We can read in Josephus. Josephus produces a, reproduces a letter that Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, um, Antiochus the Great had some concerns about unrest in that area, so he took some Jews out of Israel. He took several thousand Jewish families, and he moved them up to Turkey to stabilize the area because the Jews were considered very stable. They followed their religious traditions. They didn't upset the apple cart at the time. And it it seemed like a good move. And so we've got the letter. Here's what the letter says. It says, more than 2,000, move 2,000 Jewish families into the region, quote, because of their piety towards God and because I know that they're faithful and with eagerness do what they're desired to do. So Antiochus moves a couple of thousand Jews up there. When he moves, those are the families, 2,000 families. So you got, what, 6,000 or so Jews maybe. Now what happens? The Jews go there and when Antiochus sends the Jews because he wants them to stay there and he wants them to make it home and he wants them to be a long-term stable presence, he gives some further instructions. He says, hey, they come in, don't tax them. They're going to live tax-free. That's pretty good. I might... Never mind. Um, He also says, pay them, pay the Jews money for them to be able to practice their religious convictions. Pay for the religious services. Pay to, to upkeep and build and do whatever you need to do. And what I want us to get a a vision of here is Paul, I don't know if Paul's aware of all of this. I don't know what history he had. But I suspect Paul is going to Galatia because Sergius Paulus has pointed him that way and said, you know, the field's ripe unto harvest there. It's my family. I'll send letters with you. Go go, Go show my family the gospel. But what's fascinating to me is for hundreds of years before this happens, God has been working the field, getting it ready. Because you see, when Paul goes, Paul may be in Pisidian Antioch, far away from Jerusalem, but the first thing he does is go to the synagogue and sit down. Because those Jews who got relocated had the money and the government support to build synagogues. So there was a meeting place for the Jews. And not just for the Jews, but the other Gaulish Grecians. The Galatians. Who feared God, even though they weren't Jewish. And they were called God-fearers that would attend the Jewish worship. And so Paul and Barnabas arrive, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. See, God had had made the fields ready for them and had been working for hundreds of years. Now, I'll digress. This, I, this is point for home one when we get to it. 
But every one of us in here has heritage. And God's been preparing you in your field for how he wants to work in your life. He's been doing the same for me. And it's an incredible thing to know that God Almighty has numbered the hairs on our head, keeps track of every sparrow, and has prepared our fields for us to be living in them right now. Not only that, but he's prepared the fields that we walk in for us to harvest and to do his work in them as well. And so when you've got an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, either with words or by love, by showing them the love of Jesus, by the way you treat them, you never know how much work God's already put into that field so that you're there at just the right time to be doing your part in it. Or maybe you're helping get the field ready for later. It's a wonderful image that Paul uses in his sermons and teachings a lot. So it's appropriate for us to use it here. Now, okay, next point. That's a new capsule. Set that capsule aside. We've done two capsules so far. Capsule number three. You're in your Wayback Machine or you're in the time tunnel. And you go with Paul and you go to a synagogue service. What I would have wanted to do if I had had... Uh, I say if I'd had time, I guess if I hadn't spent all day yesterday baking, I would have had time. But what I wanted to do was consider making this uh, a class where we kind of enact a synagogue service that, that we think would have been contemporary for Paul. But I don't have time to do that or didn't have time to put it together. So instead, I'm going to tell you about it. First of all, how many of you are sitting within three or four seats of where you've sat before in here? Creatures of habit, aren't we? I'm an aisle sitter. I don't know how the housers do it right there. I'd get a rash. Can't, ah, uh, okay. Can't, can't do it. I got to sit in the aisle. It's uh, uh, also interesting. I sat next to Mike in Melna Moriarty this morning. We've got sick children, so Becky's at home. And uh, Mike and I just sat right next to each other. Okay, that, that was really tough. I mean, I love Mike. He's like a big brother to me. But you get real used to having like that little space between you and them, you know, that empty seat. My idea of a full auditorium is one where there's an empty seat between me and whoever's not related to me. <laughs> it's, 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 I'm not bragging. This is not a good thing. It's just part of me. I admire and respect folks who aren't that way. I know you ladies, I know the Okikis, I know the Taylors, I know Jeff, I know, I know, oh yeah, he's, she's back to the Taylors, he's in the middle. But I know y'all, and y'all are all sitting just right next to each other, and I, it's really impressive. I can't do that very well. I did it this morning with Mike, he sings pretty good, but not as good as Melna. <laughs> but I draw this out for a reason. I want to tell you that if you'd been in the synagogue, you don't sit just anywhere. Where did they sit? Well, they had a seating plan. Okay? They had a, a very deliberate seating plan. First of all, we don't think the men and the women sat together. Women on one side, men on the other. Next, the older people sit at the front. The younger people sit in the back. See, now the church I grew up in, we flip-flopped it because if the kids were sitting in the back, 
they would never pay attention to anything at all. So they made the kids sit up front and the parents sit in the back so that they could thump the ear if need be for the kids. But in the Jewish synagogue, you had the elders or you didn't have to be that old to sit in the front if you were really rich. But the rich, the old, the special people got to sit in the front. And it was the kind of thing where if you went in and took the wrong seat, uh, it would not be a matter of Christian charity in how you were handled. You were expected to sit where you belonged. In fact, Jesus is talking about the hypocrites who love the most important seats in the synagogue. Okay? You go back and you do a concordance search of synagogue and look for seats in the synagogue and you'll find five or six different passages where Jesus comments on the people who want the really good seats to have the center of attention on them during the worship. Interesting. Now, if we looked around, we'd find a closet. The closet held the scrolls. Scrolls were wrapped in linen. The scrolls were their scriptures. The scrolls, there would be five scrolls of Moses. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then there's a set, those are called the Torah. Then there's a second set of scrolls that are the prophets. Now, the prophets included things like Samuel, Samuel the prophet, First and Second Samuel. The prophets included uh, a, a number of books like that that we would almost consider historical. But the Jews considered them valid history because they were recorded by prophets who spoke of God with the voice of God. In addition to the prophets, there was a third set of scrolls that sometimes they just called the other scrolls. But those were the scrolls that included the Psalms and the Proverbs and some writings like that. Now, these scrolls are holy scripture. And so they're placed in the cabinet. They're wrapped in linen. By the way, books don't come into being until the church, really. The church is responsible for books, by and large. And it's because churches wanted references to be able to go back in the scriptures. And it's really hard to do that with scrolls. But if you put everything together in a codex, you can open it and bold it and move in and out. And so when the codex has started coming out, Christians really seized on them for scripture. And it's the church that propelled them into prominent use. But the Jews had scrolls. So if we wanted to know what order the Jews put their Bible in back at the time of Christ, it would really depend upon what order they stuck them in the cabinet in. They didn't really have a, a clean order. You know, it wasn't, okay, you know, with a file system. Here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, First Joshua, Judges, Ruth. No, I mean, they're, they're in there. And that's one reason we don't have good, clear order on Old Testament books. There really wasn't any until the church started putting them into book form. Make sense? Okay, so you've got all these scrolls in there. What else do we have? Well, at the front, you've got what's called a bema. And it was a raised platform. And this is an archaeological find of a synagogue with a bema over in Asia Minor. And in this platform was lifted up at the front and it would have a table or a desk on it where someone could read or someone could preach. And that's what would be done. Now, we'd see lots of other things there as well, some things that would remind us of what we're doing and some that would not. What would happen in the actual service? The actual service was not generally presided over by the head of the synagogue. The ruler 
our leader of the synagogue, would assign out jobs to the people who were coming for each Sabbath service. So someone would assign out a test. They might say, Constable Hickman, uh, this Sunday we'd like you to read the, the portion from the law, from the Torah. And the Torah, the portion that'd be read each Sunday was actually a, a predetermined division because the goal was to read through the entire first five books of Moses every Saturday uh, in three years. So it was on a three-year cycle. So uh, here's the portion that needs to be read this, sun, this Saturday from the Torah. Would you please read it? Uh, uh, Jeff, we're going to need you to read some of the prayers because their prayers were read and the congregation would respond with amens. Um, Peter, we're going to need you this Sunday to read uh, out of the prophets. Now, whoever read out of the prophets generally got to pick what they wanted to read, which makes it significant when Jesus was asked at synagogue one time to be the reader of the prophets because he chose the passage out of Isaiah that he'd been sent to preach good news to the poor and said, today that's being fulfilled here. Okay, so you, you, he, the, the synagogue ruler would find the people and find someone's, Bob, would you uh, this Sunday or Saturday be prepared to, after we have the Torah reading, to give some words of instruction or teaching from it, you know, uh, uh, and, and they would proceed on that basis, all right? So the worship service would unfold and it would start with the Shema. The Shema, a good Jew today will be able to tell you what the Shema is. Okay? It comes from the very first word in it. The Shema starts from Deuteronomy 6.4. And it goes for several verses in Deuteronomy. There are several ver- more verses in another section of Deuteronomy. There's some in, uh, uh, I believe, Numbers. I've got the passages set out I- exactly in your handout or available on the net for those who want to get it there. But it would begin with Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And the the congregation would say the Shema. As good Jews would say it every day in the morning and in the evening. In the middle of the day. So it starts with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And from there, the congregation would start in with a number of different prayers. And during the praying, everybody stands up. It's not a corporate prayer in the sense that everybody's saying it. It's not an extemporaneous prayer by the prayer. It's a red prayer, a red benediction and blessing and prayer. And and these prayers would be read and the congregation would answer with amen. And that's the real word. That's where we get it from, amen. So that would happen. That's, you know, we we get glimpses of this when we read our New Testament. Jesus talks about whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. I chose that one out of a handful of passages where we see him talking of standing and praying without knowledge of how Stephen was going to be preaching this morning, but it sure does fit. So whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Don't listen to a prayer and then say amen and harbor bitterness in your heart. And and, uh, uh, because they stood while they prayed. What else would happen? The Torah would be read next. And after the Torah is read, something from the prophets is read. So, for example, we have the passage I just talked about where Jesus stood and read the prophet section. You would stand also during the reading of God's word out of reverence. Next, 
a sermon or a teaching followed. Now, the main goal behind the Jewish synagogue service was not so much corporate worship as it was corporate instruction. It was teaching. It was much more teaching-centered, whereas many of our services are much more worship-centered. We still have the teaching emphasis as well, to some degree in the sermons, but principally through this. One of my main goals as your Sunday school teacher is to teach. It is hopeful to me and and to the church that, that these classes are instructive. That you walk away from here, whether you got seminary training or training from the school of hard knocks, that you walk out of here and say, I learned something new. Because that's what we're trying to do here is teach as a service to God. All right, now... That's assigned out to someone who's qualified to do it. Could be a member of the synagogue, could be a qualified visitor. But the synagogue ruler would be in charge of finding someone who's got something to say. I'd like us to now go back and look at the Acts 13 passage in light of these things, recognizing that Paul and Barnabas come in. I have no doubt they had an opportunity to meet and greet people as they come in. They probably had fresh zucchini bread. They probably had hot coffee equivalents they came in and they had a chance to meet and greet and i'm sure the ruler of the synagogue wanted to know who the newcomers were now you get a newcomer who comes in and you find out he has uh, studied at the feet of the most learned rabbi alive that day that he comes from jerusalem itself where he got his education yet he speaks greek fluently being born and and to some degree nurtured and reared in a Greek land. Wow. You know, if I'm the ruler of the synagogue, one thing that's going to get pretty painful week after week, it's not a 13,000-member megachurch synagogue. The synagogue is probably smaller than this class. And it's not a big travel time in history. Travel's dangerous and tough. So you got basically the same people every Saturday. And some are going to want to speak all the time. Usually they're the most dangerous ones. Some don't ever want to speak, which is a pity because sometimes they have the most important things to say. They've been spending their time listening while the rest of us have been spending our time when we should have been listening. So the synagogue ruler's got to come up with someone every Sabbath to give a talk. I'm sure it's not, oh, gee, let's get Lanier again. You know, he's looking for somebody new. In comes Paul and Barnabas. And so we go back to the Acts passage. Paul and Barnabas come to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Would you like to give the free lesson today? Would you like to comment on the scriptures? Paul gets asked by the rulers of the synagogue if he wants to talk about the Lord. He did. And he said, as a matter of fact, men of Israel and you who fear God. Remember I told you the the Greeks who showed up would be called God-fearers. That's who he's addressing here. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. 
as a Jew. We know the history of God and the way he's worked in humanity. We know how he came to Moses. We know how for 40 years he was with the people as they went through the wilderness. We know that God gave us judges. We know he gave us prophets. We know he gave us kings. And the greatest king he ever gave us was King David. And we know that through King David, God said he would issue a Messiah, a Savior, through the seed of David. And that Savior has come. His name is Jesus. And John the Baptist, who it, you read the sermon, it's pretty apparent that these folks had heard of John the Baptist and had probably heard of Jesus to some degree. But he says, John the Baptist... He came first. He said, there's coming someone after me whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. This is Jesus. And Jesus came. And Jesus came to be Messiah, Lord, King. And the rulers didn't accept it. The rulers didn't want any part of it. And the rulers denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And to prove it, to strip him of, the, of, of, of any chance of being the Messiah and to make it very clear he's not the Messiah, the rulers had him killed. Ironically, making him the Messiah because God resurrected him. King David himself, his body saw corruption. But the body of Jesus never did because he is Savior and Lord who conquers even death. And by his death, by the authorities trying to to quiet and quash any notion that Jesus is Messiah, they walked right into the hand and outfolding plan of God, crucifying Jesus through the authorities, proving his Messiahship as he was resurrected to eternal life, which we have if we want. He offers forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. The darkest, deepest, worst thing you've ever done. Even if you kept doing it. Doesn't matter. He paid the price for every sin for every one of us in this room. And that's what Paul gets to say because the ruler of the synagogue asked him if he had anything to say. He, uh, he did good. He ended and he said, look, you scoffers, quoting a line in Habakkuk. He says, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work you will not believe even if one tells it to you. He said, when Habakkuk spoke these words, he was speaking of the day when God brings Jesus down to earth, pays the price for our sins, and resurrects him. And that's what happened. And that was that first synagogue service that's detailed in Paul's missionary journey. Afterwards, the people are abuzz. They said, could you stick around? We want to hear more of this next uh, Sabbath. And what happens after that gets very interesting because Paul does spend some time talking to the Greeks and the God-fearers and the Jewish people get kind of jealous. They want possession of God in an exclusive way instead of realizing that God possesses us. Points for home. Number one, God prepares the mission field. Jesus says to us that. He says that the fields are wide unto harvest. Pray to God to increase the laborers to go out in the fields. God God prepares it. It's God's mission. It's God's desire to save the world. Our God is a saving God. 
Too many people grow up with an idea that God's a God of technicalities. He's willing to save you if you do it right. He's willing to save you if you jump through these hoops. He's willing to save you if you walk within his restricted boundaries. Well, God's not looking ways to trap you out of your salvation. God is looking for ways to ensure your salvation. He's in the saving business. He wants it. And so he's prepared a a mission field out there. He's done a work that may have taken hundreds of years to unfold for just the time to be just so ripe for us to walk in them and to reap a harvest. Point for home number two. God works today. He works in the here and now. It's Sunday, March 16th, 2008, as I deliver this class here at Champion Forest. And I'm here to tell you, God works today in your life. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care if you're ignoring him. I don't care if you're flirting with him, dancing on the edges of his attention span. I don't care if you're riding a fence, too godly to be in the world and too worldly to be in God. I don't care where you are. God knows it. He knows right where you are. And he has something for you. In the here and now. Right now today. And so as you walk through the fields are white unto harvest. God's doing this multi-work. I mean it's like cinema 39. You know he's got 39 cinemas going on at one time in just your life. He's got the fields you're walking through. That you're helping prepare. He's got you working as a laborer in the field. He's got you working maybe in a harvest situation. But he's doing the same thing in your life. And he's doing it in the lives of others. Generations later if he tarries. Because you're part of the field today that's going to affect them. God does this through his people. His mission work. I had this slide last week. Paul asks the Romans, how are people going to believe if, of Jesus whom they've, if they, they've never heard of him? And how are they going to hear of him if there's nobody to preach him? If there's nobody to talk to him? And, and how are they going to preach unless they're sent and someone sends them? So Paul says that in Romans 10. This church has a ton of missionaries. We have regular missionaries. We have part-time missionaries. I got to meet um, Jill and Steve Adolph right over here. And I've been swapping some emails with them. They just got back from Bangladesh. Uh, uh, Steve's father and mother are missionaries over there that I'm sure would love your prayers. Bob and Barb Adolph. They're in Ethiopia today, right, I think? And you told me that they're headed over to Ghana at some point. Okay, Togo and then Ghana. Doing mission work. I talked this morning to Christine Franks who's working on getting her support put together this summer because she's going to go to Zambia and do mission work this summer. Um, We've got families. This is Danny and Vanessa Beams with their children, Isaiah, Luciana, and Nathaniel. They're in Bolivia where Danny is working, sharing the gospel, not only by words but by deeds. He's digging water wells so that the people there have fresh water. He's showing the love of Jesus. His wife, Vanessa, she works at a crisis pregnancy center sharing Jesus. She also does work at an orphanage, loving those orphans and teaching them about God and Jesus and his love. So these are folks we can be praying for. 
that our church supports in small ways or big ways. We have a role. I want to, I want to close with prayer, but before I pray, I want to tell you this. We all can have a role in mission work simply by praying. Do you realize when Jesus said, the fields are white unto harvest, pray that God will increase the laborers to go into the field? Why does Jesus say that if we don't need to pray? But Jesus says that the prayers of his people will change the way things happen. So we need to be praying for these missionaries. We need to be praying for the mission field. We need to pray. You know, I, I need to be praying that my children consider that maybe what God's calling them to do. Or maybe us. Maybe you. It doesn't have to be the big lifetime ventures now. This church has a number of mission trips set up this year that are smaller capsule versions. And just because it's a capsule version doesn't make it a vacation. It makes it a mission trip that you can do on your vacation time. But you go there and you serve people and show them the love of Jesus. Paul didn't stay in Pisidian Antioch forever. You can do remarkable things in a few weeks. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the way you work. We thank you for these wonderful missionaries. We thank you for the beams. We ask your blessings on them. We thank you for the crosses we talked about last week. We ask your blessings on them. We pray for all of the missionaries in this church from this church, Lord, and throughout your body, that the kingdom of God will be advanced, that the gates of hell will be destroyed. We pray that you will protect them up to the point where your purposes need persecution. And in that event, we pray that you will uphold them and we praise you and glorify you and honor both you and them that they're willing to go through persecution on your behalf. Lord, may we be attentive to that. And I pray also for your mission within our lives, that we not only turn to you our own lives, but that we look on how we can serve you in the fields that are white unto harvest. We praise you as an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, incredible God whose foresight is as clear as his historical vision. That's awesome to us, Father, that you know the future as easily as the past. And so it is our prayer that you will make us part of your future to walk in your blessings. Thank you for so many people who will be traveling this week and out with spring break and pray for your travel mercies on them, but pray that they'll take Jesus with them wherever they go. And we look forward to a class return here if it's in your will. Through Jesus we pray, amen.